For NPR Music, you're connected to All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan. There are songwriters and then there are storytellers. And Steve Earle is certainly a teller of tales. His songs, The Devil's Right Hand, Copperhead Road, Guitar Town, they've been sung by artists like Johnny Cash, Emmy Lou Harris, Waylon Jennings, Vince Gill, Patti Loveless, and so many, many more. Steve Earle's inspiration came from two main storytellers, one, Towns Van Zandt, and the other, Guy Clark. In 2009, Steve Earle made an album of Towns Van Zandt songs called Towns. And now he's paying tribute to his other hero, Guy Clark, by releasing Guy. The album by Steve Earle and the Dukes covers 16 songs by that great Nashville via Houston artist, Guy Clark. It leans towards some of his earlier tunes. On this edition of All Songs Considered, we premiere Dublin Blues, and I have a conversation, a great conversation, with Steve Earle about the day he left San Antonio, headed to Nashville to meet his hero, found him playing pool, and quickly became his bass player. We begin our conversation after listening together to some of Dublin Blues from that new record. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and Steve Earle, he's on a bus, his own tour bus, in Austin, Texas. I was in Austin In the chili parlor bar Drinking mad dog margaritas And not caring where you are Here I sit in Dublin Just rolling cigarettes Holding back and choking back The shit's with every breath So forgive me all my Give me all my faults Ain't no need to forgive me No hanging what I thought I loved you from the get-go I love you till I die I love you on the Spanish steps Till you say goodbye I'm just a poor boy Works my middle name If money was a reason Then I would not be I stand up and be counted I'll face up to the truth I'll walk away from trouble But I can walk away from me Oh, give me all my anger Oh, give me all my faults So I think the first thing you have to think you have to do is, is explain to people when the first time you had a mad dog margarita and just one one what one is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't think I ever had a mad dog margarita. I was never a margarita uh, guy. When I drank tequila, I pretty much drank tequila. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those deals. I bought lots of girls margaritas, but I never drank one myself. <laughs> and the mad dog one is uh, is like agave or something, right? It's not. Uh, it's a thing at the it's a thing at the chili parlor bar. The chili par the, the Texas chili parlor happens to be in the same building right next door to what was it was originally 
Rod Kennedy's uh, checkered flag, which was the folk club in Austin in the 60s, the guy that founded the Kerrville Folk Festivals Club. And then that became Castle Creek at sort of the height of the Cosmic Cowboy thing in the 70s. I spent my 21st birthday playing bass for Guy Clark at Castle Creek at the, the, the last night of a six-night stand when Old Number One came out. And the Chili Parlor was always one of the, guy, one of the first places Guy went when, he went when he got to Austin. How did you ever become his bass player you knew his music i assume before well, you met I was him 20 uh, no i i knew about guy because i i left san antonio went to houston and you know jerry jeff walker had recorded you know la freeway and uh that old old time feeling and and you know then eventually desperado's waiting for a train and but even before that when i got on my own i went to houston first and i played a, a coffee house called sand mountain and it guy had played there towns had played there jerry jeff walker wrote mr bojangles in the apartment upstairs which was towns's apartment and just so people know it's you, uh, i used to have to you're talking about towns van zandt because right you know right yeah yeah yeah, yeah i'm yeah, sorry fine, keep going <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sorry we we all yeah. that, that there's a reason why that that, that my my town's trivia record is just called towns and this is called guy but uh it's that i always forget <laughs> but there was a mural in the back of the room and it was towns guy jerry jeff a guy john sanders who's a local folk he was very you know big on that scene and uh, mickey newberry and you know when i played there it was usually pretty empty so i could see the mural very clearly when i was playing and um it was uh so i i knew people that knew guys songs and i heard them from other people playing them from jerry jeff recording them i knew towns and then i just decided that that um to check nashville out instead even though there was a lot going on in austin but it it was a little all over the place to tell you the truth and what was happening in nashville seemed way more like people were getting something done and that's where guy was and that's where i settled and i immediately met guy within a few nights of getting to town and i had a sort of automatic introduction because i knew towns was it was it like purposeful you went to see him or was it uh the beauty of oh, life, I was, you know, the I coincidence. Yeah, I, no, I it was, I was, I was there. I was looking for yeah, Guy okay. Clark when I went there. I was looking for Towns Van Zandt when I went to Houston. I was looking for Guy Clark when I went to Nashville. You know, Chris Christopherson was already gone, and, and Guy Clark was who you looked for. Um, a friend of mine named Richard Dobson, who was a songwriter from Texas, really great songwriter. He wrote, you know, Baby Ride Easy, and he was the bartender at a place called Bishop's Pub. And I'd already started. I've been in town a few weeks and hanging out there. Guy and Susanna had already moved out to this house out in the lake, which eventually. Eventually, Towns lived in. It's where Towns actually passed away. But, but they were living far enough out that you didn't see them quite as much. And I walked into the joint one night, and Richard says, "Guys in the back," and there was a pool room in the back of Bishop's. So I went back there, and you know, I got my hat pulled down low over my eyes, and kind of sitting in the corner watching him shoot pool. It was him and Susanna and Jim Stafford and and Deborah Allen playing, you know, partners against each what other. What kind of hat two, were you the wearing? Two couples. <laughs> Oh, it's a cowboy hat. I'd never. Nobody would have recognized me without a cowboy hat when I first got to Nashville. I wore one all the time. <laughs> um, but I uh, just sat there back and watched him, and he was leaning over a shot, and he looks up and through his eyebrows and sees me and notices me, and he says, "I like your hat," <laughs> and that began the conversation. And, <clears throat> and then you know he found out I knew towns, and <clears throat> I was sort of temporarily in. Until he heard a couple of songs, and then I was in, and and um, and I had a, I had a teacher. You said you played bass. So were you a bass player, or, or did, did you just? No, kinda... I was the worst bass. <laughs> no, no. I, I it was it. What happens? Rodney 
had been Rodney you know, Crowell. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm sorry. Skinny Dennis San- Sanchez had been sort of everybody's bass player in Nashville, and they had gone back to L.A. by that time. He and Rodney had been roommates. Guy owned because he had played some bass. He owned a, a 65 Precision bass. You know, Rodney played bass with him. The few gigs that he played where he that he didn't do by himself. And you know, we were getting closer to maybe his first record. It took forever to make his first record. There were lots of fits and starts. And then, you know, after I'd been in town about a year, the record was finally coming out, and he had to have a band. He said Rodney had moved to L.A. to play with Emmy Lou by that time, and so I, I guess what the kid did was the kid played bass. So I was handed <laughs> the bass, and I was the kid now because Rodney was gone. So. Um, what was the age difference uh, and between I went, you two? And you say the kid between me and Guy, like, uh, 12, 15? Uh, sixteen okay. years, something like that. Fifteen, sixteen years. I mean, I'm when I let's see, let's see. I think Guy was thirty three when we met, or something like that, and I was or, or thirty four, and I was nineteen. So it's so whatever that yeah, is. 14, so it's fourteen yeah. years, I guess. Yeah. And so, what was your attraction to him? I mean, here you are. You you leave San Antonio. You leave where you love your Houston. All that and head to Nashville to want to see this. When you heard his songs, what was it about it that that made you want to know more about this man? The stories, you know, it was this thing that I kind of grew up with, and I, I started writing songs, you know, as soon as I figured out that, you know, I grew up listening to a pretty good mix of country music and pop and folk music, because, you know, I was, be- I was you know, Beatles, Stones, Bob Dylan, but I also, the Johnny Cash show was a big deal in my life, because all of a sudden I didn't feel so weird, because I had long hair and cowboy <laughs> boots, and and I lived in a place where the, where the Flying Burrito Brothers were on the radio, just by accident, you know, so I always knew who Graham Parsons was when that started but then this thing started I started getting out and playing coffee houses mainly because I was too young to play places to serve liquor and there was still a, a few some coffee houses in Texas and there was a circuit and you immediately started hearing about Towns Van Zandt and you started hearing about Guy Clark and I figured out there was a difference in the way those guys wrote and that I for some my, my first songs were all girls names for titles just like everybody else's I think but it was you know after a while I figured out that what came naturally to me was narrative that rhymed and or, or, or you know or tried to and but they were essentially stories and it was try to to trying to figure out how to tell a story in a song in as little time as possible I mean guy and I you know, Susanna Clark, his wife was getting cuts, you know, because she was writing these really compact little country songs. And Guy and I got drunk for a week when the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald went to number one because we thought maybe there was some hope for us because we were writing all these, you know, epics. And Just real quick for, I, you for, know, for, for frame reference because that song is, it's a Gordon Lightfoot song. It's like six plus minutes. It was on the radio all the time about a ship, like you know, and they right? played and it over and over again. They played so that was it. an inspiration to you, right? There was hope. Yeah, and the coolest thing was it was a contemporary event. It wasn't something that happened 100 years ago. It just happened like two years before when he wrote the song. So it's one of those things. We were folk singers. We were, you know, we wrote stuff that that, that you had to go to the library and research before the Internet existed. (laughs) And um, Ben McCullough was a day in the library for me, which I wrote when I was 20 years old. And Guy, just for some reason, saw in me, I think probably the same way I do some younger writers I run into, some of him. And he, uh, he was, t- him and Towns were totally different. It's like the difference between different. What got, Towns would give me a copy of "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee" and tell me go read it. Guy would show me how he laid a song out on the page. Um, 
you know, and, and they were, it's like the difference between Kerouac and Ginsburg, you know, like Kerouac died young, didn't write the last, you know, decade and a half of his life. The same thing with Towns. Towns only lived to be 51 and he didn't, he wrote a couple of songs. They were both great songs, but he only wrote a couple of songs in the last, last 15 years of his life. And, but Guy worked every day. Wrote songs right up until just a few months before he passed away. You said something really interesting that I don't know if you could lay out for people, but when you said that guy was the kind of person who would lay out the the pattern or the the the, the thread of a story on a page, was it? Are you talking like diagrams? Well, first this has happened, then we go down here, and that. Ha- what, what describe what you mean? Yeah, by that. basic. Basically, he what he did. What he showed me was what he did, and he wrote on yellow legal pads with, and he would always say with a with a pencil and a big eraser. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd write a, whatever the inspiration was, whether it was a chorus or a verse. And if he knew it was a chorus, he'd put it out, he'd put it in down the page. And then he would leave space for he, if he already had the melody, he would draw out lines and number them where the lines go in and start filling in the gaps. And and that you know, so I started doing that. Now the problem I had was my handwriting was so illegible. That even when I was sober, I could I would often wake up and and write have written some down and could not read my own handwriting. So, digital saved me, and I basically write the way that Guy Clark taught me to write, except I do it on an iPhone. I, I you know anything I put in notes on my phone goes on my computer or my iPad automatically. And the cool thing about computers, and I teach this because I teach songwriting. Um, in my this camp that I do, I, I you know in digital you can lay it out on the page, and if you go, oh, that's not really the first verse, that's the second verse. You can grab the whole verse and drag it down the page. So it works great for songwriting the way that I was taught to do it. He was methodical. He he would no doubt about it. He built guitars, you know, and I once asked him. Why do you always build two guitars? And this, this is a stupid question to me now because I know a lot about, I collect guitars and I know about, a lot about building them. But this was when I was 20. I asked him why they always built at least two. They're always built in batches of even numbers. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason. Cause and he said, he looked at me like, you know, a little surprised that I couldn't figure it out logically. He said, because there's always glue drying. You know, so you start two guitars, and while the glue's drying on one procedure, you go to the next and do the next procedure on the other guitar. That's the way he was. It wasn't an assembly line. It was pure inspiration, but the idea was to keep it organized so inspiration did not get away from you. Do you ever write two songs at once? Uh, I have, yeah. I'm writing for theater is the reason I moved to New York in the first place, and... um, I'm writing a piece for um, the same couple, um, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, who wrote The Exonerated. They have a piece that's as yet untitled. It's about Upper Big Branch, that that long wall mine that blew up in West Virginia nine years ago. And I'm writing songs for that. And those the core of those songs will be the core of my next record after the guy record which i've got now thanks to being able to put the guy record it's going to come out in 2020 and it's the more political record that i promised talk about dublin blues for a minute it's a song you know not unfamiliar it's someone in love with someone else and and then they leave them and there are two feelings that go on in people's brains one is i want you back and the other is like really happy when i can't think about you anymore just right. right well i mean it's tough for us that knew we we all i think i got married as many as uh, times as i did i was trying to you know like recreate two things my parents and guy and Susanna, and they were together you know till Susanna died it wasn't 
linear and it wasn't perfect. They were separated for a while. Dublin Blues, I guess, is about that period. It's a later song, you know, by my standards. Most of the stuff on the on this album is older stuff. And so some people, I don't, I didn't record the cape. I didn't record a lot of stuff on the later records. I, some stuff I did, but I was more connected to earlier stuff. So it's heavily weighted towards earlier stuff. And, and it's already 16 songs. It's an incredible body of work that this man left. It's a lot of great songs. But this song, you know, it's tough because it's a little personal and it's a little... If you don't know them, it's, you, can, you relate it to your life, and that's the mark of a great song. It's tougher for us that knew them. You understand what I'm saying? Because we kind of, I, I have trouble believing it's about me. I know it's about guys. Uh -huh. There's a beauty in the in the way this song works, and I'm trying to by by using one song, trying to get into the the songwriting genius that you find that attracts you to him. One thing that you said, and I find true too, is when a song becomes universal, it's true to the writer but to the listener uh you can take right. away what and what you need and what you want out of a song uh, that's the job the job's <laughs> empathy P people don't care about what happens to you they care about what happens to you that they can relate to i learned that a long time ago i, I think that when i it fin i was doing it because guy did it but he never told me that i needed to do it and towns never told me they needed to do it they just did it but when I was playing a benefit with Johnny Cash and John D. Loudermilk and Waylon Jennings and a bunch of people were there and we you know, were sitting around talking and, and Cash said, I like that song of yours, Little Rock and Roller. And I was just, you know, um, Johnny Cash said he liked one of my songs. So I was, you know, after walking around about four or five feet off the ground for several days, I got back on the bus and a few weeks later, I'm in a truck stop somewhere and a truck driver walked up to me and said, man, I like that song of yours, Little Rock and Roller. And the light went on. They both related to the song, but they both related to it because they both traveled for a living and they both have kids. That's no, nobody. And there's big diesel. Nobody and cares. Truck stops and things that. Yeah, nobody get, cares that you're feeling sorry for yourself because you're riding around on a bus that costs more than their house. <laughs> it's the stuff that you have in common. It's the stuff of, that every that makes everybody hurt that that an audience is going to respond to. Do you have people coming up to you I, who are uh, your guy Clark to you know the way you were? I don't know that it's as, as intense as it was because, for one thing, we were all part of a salon that existed for a brief period of time in Nashville. I just happened to get there. The inmates were in charge of the asylum when I got there, and that window closed very quickly. And I'll, I was maybe the last person that arrived and benefited from him. Rodney and I are kind of the same class. and you know, Rodney and I have a lot in common. We discovered recently we were both at the same Beatles concert in 1965. <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> Houston, Houston, the afternoon show at the Houston Coliseum. He, and you know, I was ten, and he was like thirteen or, or fourteen. But you may have even walked by shows, one another, right? I mean, that's the well, we may have been, He was he was sitting in pretty good seats. I, I I understood. I was up. It didn't matter. You couldn't hear anyway. <laughs> um, I'm very thankful that I'm able to make a living doing this. Number number one, and number two, I, I'm I'm very thankful that I came along at a time, this period when some, Bob Dylan had sort of single handedly elevated pop music to an art form by the by the force of lyrics i really truly believe that this moment when bob dylan wants to be john lennon and john lennon wants to be bob dylan makes rock and roll art overnight and otherwise it's just songs about cars and girls and i grew up with that music that's the music 
You know, I didn't know that there was any, and John, Bob Dylan was on the Johnny Cash show, and so was Merle Haggard, and I grew up in Texas, and I grew up with a lot of danceable country music, too, you know, because everybody that I saw in country bands in San Antonio had been in Ray Price's band at one time or another, including Johnny Bush and Daryl McCall and, and Willie Nelson. So, that, but you that know, time you it, talked about when Dylan and Cash met, that in rock and roll, those worlds didn't meet much until then. Right? No, I, I don't believe they did. I mean, look, the, 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 I, I got into this kind of war with, with, with Peter Garonic, kind of a, a quiet war on a panel we were, <laughs> we were on together once, because he doesn't seem to think Bob Dylan's that big of a deal. And he his argument is that Robert Johnson was as good as Bob Dylan, you know, and, and other people. You know, I, it's... Robert Johnson, it is about the songs. Trust me, there were guitar players that were as good as Robert Johnson was. Whatever he went to the crossroads and sold his soul for, you know, Skip James must have showed up right behind him. <laughs> there were other guitar players that were just as good. But he wrote every single song that the modern blues is based on. And, they, and he wrote them. As far as we know, there are no earlier versions. It, it, it's pretty original. It's kind of like bluegrass. You know, Bill Monroe single-handedly invented something. Well, I, Robert Johnson did, too. But he, he was a natural. He did it. And he was just trying to make pop records. That's what people don't get about it. He, he was just trying. He played dances, and he played. He was trying playing to entertain people and to pick up girls. Cole Porter, the same thing. That This was a guy that could have been... A professor could have been writing novels, could have been writing poetry, but he decided to write pop music, and he he applied this really high, high degree of literary skill. But he was slumming, you know. Bob did it on purpose. Bob, you know, he wasn't the only person in the village that figured out they could write their own folk songs rather than play 100-year-old songs. He was, Paxton figured it out at the same time. A few other people did. But Bob was better than everybody else. And he just, he was a sponge. He read all the right stuff. He listened to all the right records, stole them if he had to. And he knew he was Bob Dylan. Do you think of Bob Dylan's songs as songs of empathy? Like, I find them more imagery. I, I'm not sure that I empathize with, like, a Rolling Stone. <laughs> They're so convoluted. There are moments where I feel an emotion but I don't they're not the character songs for the well for the most part I mean Ballad of Thin Man they yeah, are but, but. they are they're, they're just I believe they are they're just for a moment look, look I, I'm once trying to pick up girls with you know that were wearing you know Wranglers and and, and boots and, and a lot of turquoise when I started doing this and Bob was trying to pick up girls with black turtlenecks you know in, in the village it was you impressed the people he was around with with imagery that 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 hearkened to French poets, for instance, that like the difference between Towns and Bob, more than anything else's influences, uh, Towns was listening to really conventional lyric poets. He was into Robert Frost and Shakespeare, and Bob was into you know French poets and the Beats. So it seems convoluted to some people, but the more you listen to it, the more is there. And all he was doing was flexing his muscles and then all of a sudden you know he writes tonight i'll be staying here with you or he writes just like a woman you know he writes it's it's the same thing it's the same job <laughs> he just was he was just he just had chops that nobody else had and, and he was just trying them out did you ever write a song with guy clark no, so it's, I don't have very many regrets. I know that seems weird, as bad as I've you know as I've lived my life at some points in it. But you know, somewhere my children are concerned. But for the most part, 
my biggest regret, I think, when I die is going to be, Guy actually said about two years before he passed away, we need to write a song just so our grand, just for the grandkids, if nothing else. And I, I never, yeah, I was living in New York by then, and I saw him as much as I could, but I didn't see him enough, and we never did it. And I, that's one of the few things I'll carry to my grave. Mm. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, this. Uh, I think this will turn a lot of people onto music that they've heard before, or maybe not heard before. And uh, maybe not. Yeah. No. That, and that's the reason. And the other reason for doing it is it's just it, it, it helps me. It helps me remember, you know, like where I come from, and 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 how do I move on from here? Because I I I, I want to be like him. I want to I want to do this right up until I'm gone. That's beautiful. Well, don't go anytime soon. Stay on that bus. Yeah. <laughs> Trying my best. Yeah, my Thank you so much. Steve Earle, his new album by Steve Earle and the Dukes is called Guy. It's a tribute to Guy Clark. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. Let's hear all of Dublin Blues right now. I wish I was in Austin. It's all songs considered. In the chili parlor bar Drinking mad dog margaritas And I can Here I sit in Dublin just rolling cigarettes and Holding back and choking back to shit's delivery breath So forgive me all my anger Give me all my faults Ain't no need to forgive me For hanging what I thought I loved you from the get-go I love you till I die Just a poor boy Works my middle name If money was a reason Then I would not be the same I stand up and be counted I'll face up to the truth I'll walk away from trouble But I can walk away from Watson played Columbus Stockade Blues Oh, forgive me, oh. 
wish I was in Austin In a chili parlor bar Drinking mad dog margaritas And not caring 